Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala and Ian Niblock, Chief Executive Officer of Orca Money. If you're an investor, you probably invest in funds which provide access to shares and debt securities such as bonds. But in recent years, another way to invest in debt has emerged, peer-to-peer lending. Ian, Orca Money is a peer-to-peer lending company. In very general terms, what is peer-to-peer lending? Yeah, firstly, thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to, to speak today. Peer-to-peer lending is uh, it's a method of uh, lending where borrowers can access capital through online platforms and lenders can lend directly to these borrowers through the platform. So the role of the peer-to-peer lending platform is to source borrowers, to perform credit checks, to price the price the loan, and then to match the borrowers and the lenders. So the advantage for the borrowers is they get a quick lending decision, so it's all technology enabled. And then on the investor side, they get you know good good quality returns as well, stable, predictable returns. Okay. Now, our listeners might be more familiar with, let's say, fund investing. So just in a very kind of broad way, I mean, how would peer-to-peer lending differ to investing in a a corporate bond fund? So I suppose there is some similarities. The underlying asset is loans, so it is uh, almost a fixed income uh, asset. So investors receive the interest repayments as as their coupon, if you like. But there's some distinct differences as well. So peer-to-peer lending, the borrowers are significantly different. So you have three main borrower classes, if you like. So you have consumer lending. So this is investor uh, borrowers that are borrowing to purchase a car, to renovate houses, to consolidate debt. So the average loan size can be you know, 3000 5000 pounds so quite small consumer loans. You have business lending, so and this is really SME lending. Funding Circle is the largest player in this market. Their average loan size is seventy three thousand, so it's very small SME lending. And then property lending, buy to let mortgages, and uh, development finance is really where the peer to peer lending players are playing. So these are small loans. They are off market loans. It's not large corporate bonds that you might see in a, a corporate bond fund. So that's the first difference. The loan sizes are, are small. Um, the second difference is that all these loans are off market. So it's all private private debt. The loans aren't listed on an exchange like a bond, which has its advantages in that you don't get the swings in the market. So there's no volatility with the peer-to-peer lending loans, you get direct access to the underlying performance of the asset. So, in this example, it's you know, credit risk is is the number one risk. Is the borrower going to repay back their their loan? And you get direct exposure to that to that risk, and, and obviously the benefit of that. So, uh, the difference is you know you don't get the swings in market volatility, and you get more stable, predictable returns. Okay. Now, what sort of role do companies like yours and other peer-to-peer lenders play in the whole process? Yeah, it's a good question. So our company, Orca Money, we are an investment aggregation platform. So we allow investors to invest across multiple 
peer-to-peer lending platforms. They can visit the Orca Money site, orcamoney.com, deposit funds and invest across a range of peer-to-peer lending platforms so they can research, build portfolios, manage their investments from the one centralised platform, all in one tax-efficient ISA as well. So our product is uh, slightly different to a peer-to-peer lending platform where we are serving the investor specifically. So we are independent from the peer-to-peer lending platforms. We are not originating borrowers. We are purely there to serve investors and to build diversified portfolios for the investor. Okay, so just maybe, um, let's say, an analogy for for our listeners who are perhaps more familiar with funds, I suppose you could be likened to a broker or a fund platform like Hargreaves, Lansdowne, or Interactive Investor, which intermediated between the investors and the funds, where where they might, investors might go and buy funds, and people effectively can come to you um, and buy into different peer to peer lending platforms. Absolutely. So we would be that kind of aggregation layer. The only slight difference is we also curate portfolios. So we do analysis into the market and we select the top peer-to-peer lending platforms, put them into a curated portfolio and allow the investor to invest efficiently into that portfolio. So the investor, they benefit from you know, our due diligence and the research that we've applied, the curation of the portfolio, and then also the diversification. So cross peer-to-peer lending platform, cross lending sector, so consumer business and property lending, but also across a wide range of borrowers as well, a large number of borrowers, so that if one failed to repay back their loan or if a number failed to repay their loan, the return would still be there. How do you select the peer-to-peer platforms into which you invest your clients? So there's two uh, there's two ways we do it. So firstly, what's the portfolio aim? So we are trying to achieve diversification across the three markets, so consumer, business and property. So we like to try and keep a balance between these uh, lending sectors. We also like to include the top peer-to-peer lending platforms onto the platform. And then we also do in-depth due diligence into these platforms. So we look qualitatively into who are the key people at the platforms, what's their wind-down plans in place, their regulated status. Uh, We also take the loan books of the peer-to-peer lending platforms and we do in-depth analysis into the borrower types, the spread of lending that that platform's doing, the returns that we could expect, the defaults that they've experienced in the past, late loans. We uh, are really keen to get high liquidity as well, so there's a certain um, amount of origination that the platform has to has to originate as well before we would start working with them. Okay, and um, what will be some examples of the platforms you use and how many do you use at the moment? We currently integrate with five peer-to-peer lending platforms, so it's really a curated aggregation service as opposed to a very broad aggregation service. So the reason we do that is because although we are a big advocates of peer-to-peer lending, not all peer-to-peer lenders are the same. No, I think, yeah, that's <laughs> a, uh, to put it mildly, but uh, yeah. There's quite yeah. a breadth mm. of lenders mm. on the market. And some are offering quite high-risk investments. And we don't think that that's appropriate for a mainstream audience. And our platform, our product, our offering is really for a mainstream retail investor audience. 
so to answer the question, really, mm. the platforms that we have on our on our uh, platform is Assets Capital, who's an SME business lender, Lending Crowd, who's also an SME business lender, Lending Works, a consumer lender, Octopus Choice, it's a uh, buy-to-let and property lender and, and Lambie is a buy-to-let property lender as well. Important question for people. What sort of rates of return can investors get by lending via the platforms that you put together in, in the portfolios of them? We have two portfolios. So Orca Pure uh, yields 4.3% per annum and Orca Plus 5.3% per annum. The difference is the allocation in the Orca Plus is more allocation to uh, business lending and less allocation to buy-to-let mortgage lending, so which the Orca Pure has. Okay, and those are set rates of those rates that could vary over time depending on conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a really important point to make that not all, I've said not all peer-to-peer lenders are the same, mm. but also not all peer-to-peer investments are the same. So when an investor invests, they are lending money to a cohort of loans. And each cohort of loans is different. And these change over time. So to get a consistent return is actually really difficult. So returns do vary depending on, you know, the the lent, the pool of loans that's in that investment. Now, our returns of 43 and 5.3% are indicative. They are stable but they do vary around those. Some some earn slightly more, some earn slightly less. Okay. Now, um, when you sort of like choosing platforms, you know, what would make you like avoid adding a platform? A couple of things would. Um, so, firstly, peer to peer lending has been around since two thousand five. It was actually Zopa in the yeah. UK that mm. started peer to peer lending globally, and now it's really taken off. Um, but there's been a lot of platforms that have emerged in, say, the last five years, and some haven't reached a sufficient scale. And if you don't reach a sufficient scale, then perhaps the platform is not stable enough or financially to, to conduct the repayments and to you know chase borrowers in the event of default. And secondly, the amount of origination is important. So if you have capital um, getting lent to these borrowers, you need borrowers to lend the money to. You need to have a demand from the borrower side for the supply of capital to match because if you don't, then you have cash sitting idle in the portfolio and idle cash in the portfolio just rots the return. So we really aim to make sure that the capital is lent and efficiently as possible. You mentioned that um, maybe the main risk of peer-to-peer lending is default. But I suppose an issue here is peer-to-peer lending, like you also mentioned, was largely non-existent in the UK during the last financial crisis, obviously with the exception of SOPA. So most of these those types of loans, companies haven't been stress-tested in a scenario like the financial crisis. So is it not likely that in a time of economic difficulty that defaults, peer-to-peer lending defaults would massively increase? Yes, is a short answer. But I am very bullish on peer-to-peer lending and how it would perform in the event of an economic downturn. And the reason being, as I described at the start, the difference you know, with peer-to-peer investing is it's not on the market. So the 
as it's not on the market, you know, these loans don't, these loans aren't affected by the fluctuations in, in prices and market sentiment, which means that actually you're getting the true value of the performance of the loan. So you wouldn't get large swings in the in the asset asset value. So if we take 2008, for example, Lehman Brothers collapse, FTSE 100 tanks, you know, you wouldn't see that performance dip in the peer-to-peer lending market. You'd start to see more stable performance. So I believe that during that period, when everybody's portfolios are, are down, their equities and their listed portfolios are down, then peer-to-peer lending will look more favourable. That said, the markets... Uh, if during that time, peer-to-peer lending is affected by economic conditions. So during a, an economic downturn, you're going to see unemployment rates rise. You're going to see insolvency rates rise. You're going to see fluctuations in property prices. The property market is going to be affected. And all these factors are going to affect your peer-to-peer lending investment over a, over a longer period of time. There's probably going to be a more delayed effect than than what we saw in 2008. So if unemployment rates rise, the ability for consumers to pay back their loans, might uh, more people might default. The, the big question is, would the default rates rise above the interest payment so it starts to erode the capital on interest? Now, on the goods quality platforms, I don't think it would get to that stage. On the uh, you know more higher-risk platforms, yeah, you might, you might start to see capital losses as well. Okay. Um, now, um, just thinking about Orca itself and the lenders, I mean, what would be the arguments for investing in peer-to-peer loans via Orca rather than going directly yourself into one of the peer-to-peer lending platforms? Sure. So now on the market, I mean, there's such a broad range of uh, peer-to-peer lending platforms available. So what Orca's doing is it's supplying an extra layer of research and curation. So it's perfect for investors that are interested in diversifying their portfolio to gain a proportion of exposure to peer-to-peer lending. They want the consistent returns, but perhaps don't have either the expertise or the time to do the in-depth due diligence. So that's where we've done uh, done the hard yards, curated the portfolio. We're also the only provider that allows multiple peer-to-peer lending uh, investments within one ISA. So we offer an IFISA. The peer-to-peer lending platforms also offer an IFISA. But if you invest in peer-to-peer lending ISA, the IFISA, you're tied to that one peer-to-peer lending platform. So we're allowing multiple P2P investments in one ISA. We allow diversification as well across the top lenders. So another big risk in the peer-to-peer lending market is platform risk. Platform risk is associated with, you know, financial stability of the platform, but also fraud at the platform. We've just seen this London Capital mini bond uh, fraud activity in the in the in the unlisted bond market. Now it's completely unrelated to peer to peer lending, but fraud is a risk, uh, as is technology. And really, we are diversifying across platforms, lending sectors, and borrowers. Something that, you know, the P P platforms can't. Okay. Um, I mean, that sounds good, but does that mean investing via Orca rather than doing it via platforms directly costs more? What do you charge? So for the first, uh, so until April 2020, so next year, 
we are not charging any fees, so investors can uh, earn uh, without paying any additional fees. After April 2020, there is a 0.65% uh, fee on the AUM. Okay. Um, can I ask, how do you make your profits if you're not currently charging? We also take a small uh, fee from the P2P platforms as well. We've talked about a number of the risks and what people do, but just thinking back to the investors, I mean, you know, people change their mind. If you're an investor and, um, I don't know, you're in a, in a fund, well, you sell your units, right? You go back to the fund manager probably via your platform. What about peer-to-peer lending? What if you want to get your money out before the terms of these loans have expired? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one that investors should should be asking. So, peer-to-peer lending are loans that are off market. So ultimately, you know that the asset is an elective, illiquid asset. You know, you should be waiting for the uh, loan term to end before redeeming the, the capital that you've invested. However, the P2P platforms have all developed or the majority the big p2p platforms have well-functioning secondary markets built into their platforms so with uh, the orca pure product investors can receive their money back within 14 days with the orca plus product they can receive their money back within 28 days and that is done by executing the sale of the loan on the underlying p2p platforms so these uh, platforms you know there is quite a functioning liquidity at the platforms themselves that said um you know similarly the um the underlying assets are are at liquid so investors should be just aware that perhaps in the event of an economic downturn or if there was liquidity problems at the platform they, they may have to hold their loans to term okay thank you ian a really interesting insight into peer-to-peer lending and orca money Jason Pidcock made a name as an Asian equity income manager while running Newton Asian Income Fund between 2005 and 2015. He then joined Jupiter Asset Management, where he runs Jupiter Asian Income Fund, which launched in 2016. Taha, you recently caught up with Jason Pidcock, so how are things going with Jupiter Asian Income? Well, you know, um, you can break down figures in lots of ways, uh, but to put this simply, since launch, not very well. So the fund launched in March 2016, so recently had its three-year anniversary. Since then, it's returned 55%. Uh, you compare this to something like the MSCI All Country Asia Pacific X Japan Index, uh, that's risen 67%, and the average from the Investment Association Asia X Japan sector is 60%. So, you know, he's underperformed the benchmark, underperformed peers. Not great. Also, as you mentioned, it pales in comparison to kind of his record at Newton, which made him incredibly popular. The Newton Asian Income was a was a kind of a staple Asian income fund when Asian income was also really popular. But so the five years before he left, uh, which was May twenty fifteen, as I said, he returned sixty five percent. That was versus twenty seven percent versus the index and forty two percent versus the um, sector average. So you can see, you know, his track record kind of isn't playing out uh, as well at Jupiter as he probably hoped. So why has the fund underperformed regional benchmarks and its sector average uh, since uh, launch in March 2016? There are there are quite a few reasons for this, um, and I will I'll break them down. Uh, but first and foremost is he's taken a very cautious approach to the companies that he wants to invest in. Uh, Mr. Pidgeock is very 
well, very wary, I suppose, that um, in the last oh, well, 10 years almost, we haven't seen any kind of credit crunch or even mini credit crunch or any kind of crisis of corporate debt. So he, he as well, as rationally, I suppose, if you haven't seen something in 10 years, you might expect something to happen uh, at some point in the future. And that means that he's only invested in companies with very, very low levels of debt. Or in fact, actually, there's, a, I think, a handful, around seven companies in his portfolio that have no debt whatsoever and are cash positive. So... That, that, that's a very cautious thing to do because the growth in Asia hasn't really come from these kinds of stocks. It's come from uh, kind of geared uh, high growth tech stocks uh, and stocks which also don't pay a dividend. And this is an income fund. So yeah, that- I was going to add that. Would it be fair to say that, you know, actually we're comparing him basically to growth indices and growth uh, funds because most um, most do that. Yeah. Mo- most IA Asia X Japan funds are, are growth funds, or, or income funds. High growth so, funds, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So the income yeah, is definitely so. a factor. So you mm. know, um, income doesn't generally always lend itself to high levels of debt because they servicing debt and therefore can't pay dividends. Um, so yeah, the growth in Asia just hasn't come from the stocks that he will have, what has been targeting more recently. But the um, the second reason is actually slightly unusual. Uh, now, listeners may be aware that we've talked about this in the past, that the city regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, is kind of looking into the uh, liquidity of open-ended funds. So we've had this problem with uh, Neil Woodford that we've talked about quite recently, and more importantly, uh, property open-ended property funds um, that kind of have a mismatch between the liquidity of the underlying asset and the liquidity funds need to provide to investors. Now, Mr. Pidcock's I suppose, taking quite an extreme interpretation of this. The FCA is still working on what rules it might do, but he's very concerned that this could extend to kind of less liquid areas of public equity markets. And I suppose Asia and emerging markets is, is one of those areas. Um, there's there's no suggestion from the FCA that this will happen. Mm. It, it's yeah, it's a a slight, slightly it's a, unusual. Yes, um, I've followed the FCA paper yeah, since 2016. Jason, and yeah, Jason Pidcock doesn't invest in unlisted, does he? I mean, no, no, it's, it's, it's entirely, yeah, so. entirely public yeah. uh, equity mm. fund. Perhaps he knows more than I do. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, but no suggestion for anything from the FCA that this will affect equity funds. However, his interpretation is to is to be conservative, which goes back to what I was talking about earlier. But what this does do is actually combines with his third desire, uh, which is to run a more concentrated portfolio than he used to do at Newton. And so he only has 30 stocks in the portfolio at the moment. So when you combine, kind of keep a very, very liquid fund with a low number of stocks, it kind of leads you to the highest uh, well, the the largest companies in Asia. And that's basically what he's done. Again, not always what's been driving the growth in Asia in in the past few years, and that's probably why, or another reason why he kind of has underperformed the index. So when you combine the, his desire for liquidity, his desire for concentration, and his desire for lowly leveraged companies, is a very narrow field, and also not, as I said, not what's done well in in recent times. What else does he um, consider when he's you know selecting stocks and investing? I suppose Asian equity and emerging market managers have to do this. So he does combine, I suppose, macroeconomics with fundamental stock analysis as well. So he's uh, he looks at regions and sectors that might might do well, and then uses fundamental analysis to pick the best companies that that will benefit from that that trend. I suppose, and another reason for his concentrated strategy actually is because he then wants to pick the best company that will benefit from a macroeconomic or, or sector trend rather than kind of getting two or three and, and doubling up and tripling up and I suppose kind of hoping that one of them will do well. He's, he's finding the best one or what he thinks is the best one and then uh, kind of running with that. Actually, even when he, he overlaps. So, for example, he's he's seen um, some growth in the Australian financial services uh, sector. So he has three Australian financial stocks. However, when you break that down, and he he argues they're all entirely different businesses. So one is insurance, one is kind of retail banking, and one is asset management. So all three 
financial services, but doing very different things and benefiting from um, from different trends. The other thing you have to do, actually, um, is which all Asian equity uh, managers have to do is manage political risk, and he does that. So he has this very, very strong belief that left-wing governments and interventionist governments are bad for equity markets. And, you know, I suppose yeah, there's, there's some logic to that. It, it depends how you think. Um, but that actually leaves him in, with an issue with China. Again, another reason why he's probably underperformed the index. China has a huge link to well, the, the index performance and, and kind of equity markets and also has a huge link to Asian economies. However, he is keen to access Chinese consumption, but he, he does this via companies outside of mainland China. Um, like an example of that is Sanj China, which is Hong Kong listed, actually. Um, but it operates casinos because, again, he thinks a big theme is tourism and travel for the, the kind of Chinese middle class. He's obviously not had a great run over three, three years uh, since this fund's launched. But um, is there any indication that performance um, might turn up in the near future? Yeah, and it kind of goes down to how people should view active management in terms of being really good on the downside rather than the upside. So the, a benefit of this large cap, low leverage, really conservative strategy, um, income strategy, is um, in 2018 when things were a bit hairy, um, he actually did really well. So you look at one year figures, um, he's returned 14.3%, whereas the index was 58 and the sector was 48 So, you know, that massive outperformance over one year and really actually shows how bad his three-year figures were considering when you include how well he's done in the past year as well. So yeah, he could do well in, in volatile and, and bear markets. And also, you know, this is an income fund. It yields nearly 4% total returns. Uh, have a good opportunity, I suppose. Okay, thank you, Taha. And see this week's issue of Investors Chronicle for Taha's full update on Jupiter Asian Income Fund. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see the website for more on peer-to-peer lending, Asian equities and investing for income. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.